Well, I'm really excited this morning. Um, many of you know who John Bevere is. He's a well-known author and speaker, travels all over the world, and uh, is having a tremendous impact, not only in this country, but far beyond this country, into all the world, into areas where a lot of people won't go. So I'm really excited today. You're going to be really blessed. And, uh, you know, I, I've gotten to know John really well. Uh, we've had some great talks together. We've played golf together. He always kicks my butt, but he's very gracious in, in, uh, in my defeat. Anyway, uh, but, but I've gotten to know John. I love him. He's a great guy. I've gotten to know some of his family as well. And, uh, you know, uh, we have a lot of speakers that come through here over the years, but he's got the least amount of, amount of body fat than anybody, any speaker we've ever had. So give Jesus a great hand as John Bevere comes. <laughs> I love you, man. I love you. Thank you so much, friend. Hey, good morning. Hey, everybody stand up. I always love to pray before bringing the word. I love this church. We, you're my, my, my home church here in Castle Rock, right? Because I love your pastors. I mean, JR, come on. You have amazing pastor. How many of you know? Come on, let's, let's. I was saying this morning, there's a lot of things I love about Pastor JR, but let me just name a couple, all right? Number one, he's the friendliest guy. And he just always builds me up every time I see him. He's got the least amount of body fat, so he has an expert to be able to speak on it because I guarantee you his is less than mine. He's my role model because when I'm 71, I want to look like that. That is so amazing. Come on. I mean, 71. That's like, wow. But, you know, he's got so much energy. I love that. But he's a great leader, great visionary, loves people. He was talking about, you know, Joy Ministries Melody, right? And just start crying this morning just out of his compassion for people. I love that. Yvonne, she's so pretty and so happy. So I know he loves her very well. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot. And then I look at his son, Mike, and his wife, Christy. I'm telling you, like, th this is a great package right here, right? I mean, come on. I, I've been traveling all over the world for 30 years. And this is what impresses me is when people, you know, people like leaders like this, that their family just loves them and is serving with them. I'm so happy. My son's here. Austin, Michael, Austin, wave your hand. Austin is our second born and uh, he works with us. He's head of our marketing department. Um, Lisa, my wife, I said goodbye to her on Friday. It was such a sad day. Anyway, I've been saying goodbye to her for 30 years and it gets harder every time. But uh, she's, 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 remember Robert Schuler? She's on his grandson's Hour of Power. His grandson has his Hour of Power now, okay? She's on that this morning. Yesterday, she was with Jesus Culture, and she gets on a plane going to Brisbane, Australia tonight, doing a big women's conference down there. And, uh, and so I'm going to miss her. I won't see her again until next Monday. But uh, listen, I'm fired up. We just got done with our big event at the Broadmoor we do every year called the Messenger Cup Golf Tournament and Alpine Experience. And we actually literally saw $2 million come in for pastors and leaders all over the world. So this next year, we'll be giving 3.1 million. It, the whole tournament's dedicated to God. So 3.1 million, no, I haven't said it yet, 3.1 million resources into the hands of pastors, about 500,000 pastors in about 64 nations in the next year because of that event. I am just so excited. You know, I just got back from Armenia. Lisa and I both went to Armenia. We spoke to 4,000 pastors and leaders from all over the Middle East. They were from Afghanistan, Syria, 
Syria. They were from Jordan. They were from Lebanon. They were from Turkey. They were from Iran. We had tons of them from Iran. And uh, literally, I was looking at pastors that risked their lives every moment of every day. And they were telling us how desperate they are. They were weeping over the fact that we were putting resources into their hands to help them pastor their churches. And so I'm very, very passionate about it. It's a word that God gave me May 31st, 2010. He said, I want you to resource the pastors and leaders in the world. And since then, we've been able to do 10 million. As At the end of this year, it'll be 10 million resources in the past six years. So I know, I know that's just to him be all the glory because if you would have told me I was going to do that six years ago, I would have fallen over and fainted and said, there's no way. But we serve a God that there is nothing impossible with him. So we're just bold enough to believe as a group, as an organization, we can put the hands of resources into the hands of pastors all over the world in every single tribe, every single nation, no matter where. Because Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to do whatever I commanded you. Can you say amen to that? Well, um, yes, sir. I just... Uh I forgot to mention, is my mic on? No, it's not. Anyway, I can talk real loud. Yeah. So I forgot to mention, we have buckets in the back. And, and this ministry, what John Bevere's ministry is doing, is actually changing the world. So any money that goes into there, you can put money, you can put cash, you can put checks to the rock. You know, whatever goes into that will go to feed this ministry. Because, man, they are making a tremendous impact in places like the Middle East, I think you said Vietnam, uh, just Mongolia, Mongolia, all over the world. So give Jesus another hand. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. All right. Now, I asked the first service. It was a dangerous question. I said, do you want a message from me or do you want your life changed forever? They said they wanted their life changed forever. So really, the Holy Spirit spoke to us in the first service. So what do you guys want? You want a message or you want your life changed forever? Good request. So let's ask. The Bible says we don't have because we don't ask. All right. So Father, in Jesus name, thank you for this church. Lord, I just sent your smile upon this church. Thank you for the way they're feeding the community, Lord God. Over 5,000 meals served on Wednesday night. Thank you for that so much, Father. I'm asking that today that you wouldn't give us yesterday or tomorrow's word, but what you once said right now. So Holy Spirit of God, I acknowledge my complete and utter dependence upon you. I ask that you would not only give me the word of God, but give me your heart to deliver it. Let it be as if Jesus was standing here. And Lord, as the people have requested, we want our lives changed forever and ever as a result of what you do today. And for this, we give you all the honor, the praise and the glory and the thanksgiving. And it's in Jesus mighty name. We pray. And everybody that agrees shouts, come on, give him praise in advance for what he's going to do in your life today. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to share with you out of the newest book that I've written called good or God, why good without God isn't enough to um, introduce this today. Let me just say this. Today in our society, and this mentality has even crept into the church, uh, if we identify something as good, we automatically assume it's of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, we've almost made good and God synonymous because after all, aren't we born with the inherent knowledge of what is right and wrong? But now let me say this. If good is as obvious as we say it is, why then does the book of Hebrews tell us that we have to have discernment to recognize the difference between good and evil. Why does King Solomon cry out at the dawn of his reign? God, give your servant an understanding heart that I might be able to discern between good and evil. I mean, set up the context here. He's about to take the throne. I think he's 12 years old. God appears to him, which that is mind blowing and says to him, ask me anything you want 
and he asks for the ability to tell the difference between what's right and wrong, I don't think we understand good like we think it is, we do. I mean, you would think it is a good idea to preserve the life of your friend, right? Peter does this with Jesus, and Jesus sharply corrects him and says, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. If you remember, the rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus, and he cries out, good teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And before Jesus answers the all-important question of how to be saved, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. Now, is Jesus not good? No, he is perfect good. But what Jesus is saying to this guy is, you have a reference point for good. God has a reference point for good. The two are not one and the same. So don't put me in your category. That's what he's saying to him. See, good is all about a reference point. You can have two families moving into identical homes. They are both three bedroom, two bath homes. For one family, it is a good move. For one family, it is a bad move. The family, it is a good move. They just moved out of a trailer. The family, it is a bad move. They just moved out of a $3 million estate. Let me tell you when God really made this clear to me. I had uh, traveled to Stockholm, Sweden to speak to about 6,000 leaders, mostly from Eastern Europe. And I remember I had the whole day to pray in my room in Stockholm. And I was in prayer and I'd been praying for a while. And I had judged a certain situation to be good. And in prayer, the Holy Spirit very sternly corrected me and said, no, son, it's not good in my eyes and gave me scripture to support what he was saying. And I found myself getting in a little argument with the Holy Spirit in that hotel room. I, 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 I finally, you know, just kind of put my foot down on the floor and said, but God, all the good that's come out of this situation. And the Lord said this to me in that hotel room. He said, son, it wasn't the evil side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he was attracted to. It was the good side. And when he said that, my Bible was laying on the bed and I grabbed it and I flew over to Genesis. And when I read these words, I want you to look at these words. When the woman saw the tree was good and the word good literally leapt up off the page at me. And it was pleasant. It was desirable. It would make her wise. She partook. And I remember I'm standing there in shock. And the Holy Spirit said this to me. He said, son, there is a good that will lead people away from me. All of a sudden, I realized in that hotel room for the first time in my life how Jesus's words would be fulfilled. When people asked Jesus what it was going to be like right before he returned, the days we're living in, he said, be careful that you are not deceived. That's the first thing he says. The only problem with deception is this. It's deceiving. The person who's deceived believes that they're right when in reality they're wrong. That's scary. And then Jesus said the deception in our day would be so powerful that if possible, the elect would be deceived. And it used to bother me. I thought, elect, that's Christians. How are Christians going to be deceived? And in that hotel room in Sweden, all of a sudden I realized how Christians would be deceived. They're not going to be deceived by the blatant evils that we see in this world. They're going to be deceived with evil that is masked with good. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there is a way, there's a method, there's wisdom that seems right. It seems acceptable. It seems profitable. It seems beneficial. It seems good to a man, but it's end where it takes you. The final destination is the way of death where you don't want to find yourself. 
James comes along in the New Testament, and this is why James writes this so strongly to us in New Testament believers. And he says this, he says, do not be deceived. Now, most people, when they read that, would immediately think this is a command. No, this is not a command. This is a promise. James is saying, if you get this wisdom that I'm sharing with you right here, you will become deceived proof. Now, I don't know about you, but in a day when Jesus tells me the deception will be so powerful that if possible, Christians will be deceived. I want to know how to be deceived proof. Does anybody here join me in that sentiment? How do we become deceitful? James says, get this truth in you. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, of whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Now, let's make this a little bit more palatable. What is James saying here? James is saying, if you get this truth in you, you'll never, ever be deceived. You'll be deceived proof. What's the truth? Here's the truth. You ready for it? There is nothing good for you outside of God. (laughs) If you only realize what I just said. See, I don't care how good it looks how beneficial it seems, how profitable it appears, how acceptable it is to our society, how acceptable it is to some friends, how sweet she talks to you and how rude your wife has been talking to you. If it is contrary to the written word of God, it will ultimately bring you to a destination that you don't want to find yourself. So remember, I said good is all about a reference point. What is our reference point? It's so simple. It's it's some of the final words that Paul wrote on the earth before he left. It's the scripture. Look at what Paul says here in in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, everybody shout "All all scripture, is inspired by God and is useful. (laughs) Remember the word useful. To teach us what is true, what is good for our lives, and to make us realize what is wrong, what's bad in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. Somebody goes, yeah, but I don't like correction. Oh, you don't? Watch this. Finding directions to San Diego, California. Head west, then turn left on Highway 105. So why are people so down on correction? I mean, if you're on the wrong road, it gets you on the right road. And if you're on the right road, it keeps you on the right road. So you don't end up in a destination you don't want to find yourself. Amen. So what is our reference point as Christians? It is the word of God. It's the scripture. Now, why am I taking so much time right up front here to establish this point? I'm going to tell you why. Because... In my 37 years of being a Christian, I have never in my life seen the scriptures under such attack. Now, I'm not talking about society. They've always been under attack in society. I'm talking about inside the church. 
There are churches in America and around the world that are literally cutting out verses and chapters from the New Testament if it doesn't fit into what they like for their theology. Are you with me? So can I just take a minute here right at the beginning to establish the scriptures again in our eyes? All right, 66 books written over 1,500 years. Would you go back 1,500 years? You would be at 516 AD. Do you, not, no, do you realize how long ago that is? I mean, there was, there, there's not even been a British Empire yet. You're only 200 years after Constantine of the Roman Empire. That's a long time. 66 books written over 1,500 years by over 40 writers from three different continents in three different languages. Many of those writers didn't even live in the same generation, and many of them didn't even know what the other guys wrote. You put it all together after 1,500 years, and you get this perfectly harmonized book called the Bible? Come on. What are the chances? I mean, that's like going back to 516 AD. Pick out a guy, tell him to write a chapter, go 100 years, go to a different nation, pick out a different guy 100 years later, tell him to write a chapter, do this with over 40 writers over 1,500 years, come to 2016 and tell me you got a book that makes any sense? There's no way. But let me sweeten the deal. If you look at the Old Testament, everybody say Old Testament. Testament. 39 books written over 1,100 years, with the last book of the Old Testament written 400 years before Jesus was even born. Would you go back 400 years from right now? There is no Denver Broncos, okay? There's no Denver. There is no United States. Christopher just got on the boat. It's a long time ago. The last book of the Old Testament is written 400 years before Jesus is born. Now, Many of these writers in the Old Testament, matter of fact, all of them, you know what they did? They made predictions about the coming Messiah. Predictions like he'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be called out of Egypt. He would ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. He'd be betrayed. He would be betrayed by a friend. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, that's in the Old Testament. He would be, uh, he would be crucified. That 30 pieces of silver that was given for his crucifixion would go to a potter's field. Yeah, that's in the Old Testament. He would be buried in New Testament. There's three, over 300 of these predictions in the Old Testament with the last prediction made 400 years before Jesus is born. Do you know that Jesus came along and fulfilled every one of those 300 predictions? What are the chances? I mean, there's actually a scientist who lived in the 20th century there's an expert in probability. Do you know what probability is, right? If I got a five gallon paint bucket and I've got nine white tennis balls and one yellow tennis ball and I shake them all up and I blindfold somebody and say, pick one ball out, the chance of him picking out the one yellow tennis ball is one in 10. That's simple probability. Well, this guy is an expert in it. Now, he doesn't do his research alone. He employs 600 science students from 12 different classes. And you know what these guys do? They embark on this massive research project of what are the chances that any human being on earth for over 2,000 years could have fulfilled just eight of those predictions. Here's the predictions they chose. Number one, Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Micah wrote that. Number two, Christ to be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah and Malachi in totally different generations wrote that. Number three, Christ to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah writes that. Number four, Christ to be betrayed by a friend. The Psalms in a completely different generation writes that. And here's the rest of the eight. Now, they took these eight prophecies and they said, what are the chances scientifically that any human being over the, from the time of Christ to the end of the second millennium could fulfill those eight prophecies? Now, 
Not only did they come up with an answer, they submitted their work to a third party. You know who the third party was? The National American Scientific Council, after the, which is a board of scientists. After they reviewed their work, they said, not only is their work accurate, it's conservative. So what I'm about to share with you is conservative. So they came up, they said the chances of any human being over 2,000 years fulfilling those eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, what does 10 to the 17th mean? That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. Does anybody even know that number? <laughs> I mean, it's not bazillion kajillion. I can illustrate that number. If I have that many silver dollars, remember our silver dollars? If I have that many silver dollars, I can't even store them anywhere on earth. I just got to spread them out across the ground. If I have that many silver dollars, I will cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Now, mark one of those silver dollars. Put a mark on it. Shuffle them all up. Redistribute them all over the state of Texas. Blindfold a guy in Oklahoma. Put him in a helicopter. Start flying over Texas anywhere he wants to go. He says, let down. He gets out of the helicopter, still blindfolded, picks up one silver dollar. Chances of picking out our one mark silver dollar is the chances that any human being over 2,000 years could have fulfilled those eight prophecies. Yet Jesus fulfilled not all eight of them. That's where you clap. <laughs> so Dr. Stoner and his 600 scientists said, what about 16 prophecies? So they did hours and hours and hours of research. Now remember, this is, this is, this is conservative, according to the National American Scientific Council. They determined that the chance of any human being fulfilling 16 of the prophecies is one in 10 to the 45th power. That's one with 45 zeros behind it. Now, if I have that many silver dollars, I can't store them on the earth. I got to make a big sphere, big ball of silver dollars, solid silver dollars, right? You know how big this sphere would be? The diameter of that sphere would be 60 times the distance of the earth to the sun. If you want miles, it's 5.5 billion miles. Now, mark one of those silver dollars. <laughs> Shuffle them all up, blindfold a guy, put him in a jet plane, start flying around that sphere. It would take 400 years to fly around it nonstop, by the way, on a jet. At any point in time, he says, let down. Now, remember, the Mark 1 might be in the center of the globe, the sphere. So you might have to dig 2.75 billion miles blindfolded before he picks his choice. The chance of picking our one Mark silver dollar is the chance that any human being could have fulfilled 16 of those prophecies, yet Jesus fulfilled all 16. That's where you clap again. <clears throat> now, can I, can I, can I, can you just let me humor you for a minute? <laughs> they went to 48. They said, what are the chances that any human being could fulfill 48 of the prophecies? After hours of research, remember this is conservative, it was 10 and to the 157th power. I was speaking with a rocket scientist in Huntsville, Alabama. He's really a rocket scientist. He told me there's only one, excuse me, there's only 10 to the 100 particles in the whole universe. So if I have 10 to the 157 silver dollars, you're not going to comprehend that. So I got to go to a smaller item. I got to go down to an electron. Do you know how small an electron is? If I have a one-inch line of electrons, and I start counting them right now, and I count 250 per minute, and I don't go to sleep, it will take me 19 million years to count that one-inch line of electrons. If I have one 
If I have 10 to the 157th of electrons, I got to make a sphere of solid electrons. Do you know how big the sphere would be? It'd be as far as man has ever seen into space. 13 billion light years. Now, mark one of those electrons. <laughs> Blindfold the guy, put him in a, a space shuttle, send him off. At any point in time, he can get out, still blindfolded, picks out one electron. The chance of picking out our one marked electron is the chances that any human being could have fulfilled 48 of those predictions written by those Old Testament writers. Not only did Jesus fulfill the 48, he fulfilled all 300. Okay, so can I review what we just said? We got 39 books written by several different writers. Many of those writers didn't even live in the same generation. They don't even know what the other guys wrote. The last book's written 40 years before Jesus is born. And Jesus comes along and fulfills all 300 of those predictions in those different books. And you tell me the Bible doesn't apply to today? You're stupid. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us. Now, I want, you to, I want you to look at this. This is written to Christians. We must, not it's a good idea, not we should, we must. Listen very carefully, not just carefully, very carefully to the truth we've heard or we may drift away from it. How many of you know drifting doesn't happen knowingly? It happens unknowingly. When I was a boy, I loved to fish. I grew up on White Lake, Michigan. And I remember one time I went fishing and I was so excited about fishing, I forgot to anchor my boat. When I looked up 30 minutes later, I didn't even recognize the shoreline. I had drifted so far from where I started. Drifting doesn't happen knowingly. It happens unknowingly. Can you imagine if you had to cross a landmine field, had thousands of landmines buried under the ground? It's 10 miles long, 10 miles wide. If you step on one of those landmines, you're dead. Somebody gives you a map that shows you where every single landmine is. Every single one. How do you handle the map? You throw it in your backpack and say, I'll read it if I got time. Do you kind of just glance at it and go, okay, put it in your backpack and take off and read it if you have time. If you do either of those scenarios, they're carrying you out in a body bag. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to look at that map and you're going to study it and even memorize it. You're going to put it in a place easier to reach than your water bottle, and you're going to pull it out every two steps. Well, we are walking across a landmine field. That is why we are told, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. When I wrote this book, um, I was in the middle of writing it. I actually hadn't come out yet. I had three different internationally known ministers contact me, three different months, three different places. And they said, John, you are writing one of the most important messages God has ever given you to write for the body of Christ. Now, when the first guy said it to me, I thought, beta Satan? But I was on my face. The presence of God was so strong. When the third guy finally said it again, nine months later after the first, I, I finally said, okay, God, why is this book so important? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly. He said, son, this is a calibration book. And I thought, calibration, okay, you calibrate a machine to get accurate readings. But I thought, you know what, I need to look into this more because he spoke it so strong to me. So I found out the word calibration is most frequently used in regard to gas detectors that they put in chemical factories. Now, 
What I discovered is that federal law requires that every single room in a chemical factory has to have a gas detector. Why? Because a little toxins in the air will damage its employees for life and could even kill them. I know this firsthand because my dad worked for DuPont and for 40 years and safety was crazy important for them. So I didn't go to a Christian website. I went right to Honeywell's website because Honeywell is the number one manufacturer of these gas detectors. So I go to their website and because I have a mechanical engineering background, I just went to the search page and said, tell me how to calibrate your gas detectors. And it brought me right to the page that the technicians use to calibrate their gas detectors. And you know what was in big bold letters at the top? It said, we strongly, as a manufacturer, we strongly recommend that you calibrate these gas detectors daily. And then they gave the reason. They said, because the atmosphere in the chemical factory will corrupt the sensors over time. So then I'm going to really simplify this because it was really technical. This is how you calibrate them. The technicians would take the gas detectors down and bring them into a clean air room. They would clean off the sensors, re-zero out the machine, put it back out into the factory so they know they'd get accurate readings that day. Well, our heart is our sensor. We live in a corrupt environment. The environment will eventually corrupt our sensors. That's why it's important that as believers, every day we go into a clean air environment. It's called the Word of God and the presence of God. What do we do? We get washed with the water of the Word, right? So that we go back out into the corrupt environment. We're not conformed to it, but we're but we prove. Everybody say prove. See, it's not a formula. We prove what is good, prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I have been traveling all over America for years. And can I tell you, the church in America is out of calibration more than I have ever seen before. I am alarmed at some of the beliefs, behavioral patterns of the church right now. Let me tell you just one little area that I cover in this book. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says this, pursue. Now that word pursue means chase after with the intent to apprehend. Pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Now, let's deal with the first statement, pursue, chase after holiness. Now, we have a problem, and that is this. Many times we freak when we say the word holy. I mean, can we really be honest? You don't hear it talked about much anymore in the church. Why is that? Can we, can we bring it out into the open? In order to really do that, I have to have you put yourself in the devil's shoes for 30 seconds, okay? How many of you know the devil can read? Can I see your hands? How many of you know he can read more languages than you can read? How many of you know he can read Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic? How many of you know he's read the Bible many times more than you? Okay, all right, are we there? We on the same page? So you know what he's discovered in reading the Bible, the New Testament over and over and over again? He's discovered the only description of the church that Jesus is coming back for. 
It's not a relevant church. The Bible says he's coming back for it. Now, I believe in being relevant because you're never going to get anybody saved if you're not relevant. Okay? But that's not the description of the church Jesus is coming back for. It's not a leadership-driven church. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I believe in leadership because we will never accomplish anything in the church if we don't have leadership. But it's not a leadership church. It's not a community church. I mean, the Bible stresses how important it is that we're part of a community as believers. It's not good that man's alone, right? But it's not a community-driven church. Do you know the only description of the church that Jesus is coming back for in the whole New Testament is a holy church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing? Now, you're also the devil, and you've also read in the Bible that the predominant, listen carefully, the predominant description of God in the whole Bible is not love. See, Isaiah saw the throne of God. Beside the throne are these massive beings called seraphim. They're massive. And one cries to the other so loud, they're shaking the doorposts of a building that seats over a billion people in heaven. And they're not crying, love, love, love. John the apostle saw the same thing in Revelations 5. He called them cherubim. And they're crying out the same thing Isaiah saw them crying out. They're not crying out, love, love, love. Is God love? Yes, he doesn't even have love. He is pure love. But it's not love, love, love they're crying out. They're not crying out, faithful, faithful, faithful. Is God faithful? You better believe it. You can go to the bank on his word. The predominant description of God that stands above all other descriptions is his holiness. Because those seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And they're not singing God a song, making him feel better about himself. They're responding to what they see. Every moment, another facet of his greatness is being revealed to them, and they cry out, holy, so loud, they're shaking this building. So you're the devil. And you've read the only description of the church that Jesus is coming back for is a holy church. You've read in the New Testament and Old Testament, the predominant description of God is his holiness. So what do you do? You raise up a bunch of mean-spirited pastors and teachers. These guys, they don't even like people. I mean, do you know, if you don't like people, that's why I like this man. If you don't like people, you've got no business teaching the Bible. Go teach science or math or geography, but don't teach the Bible. Okay? These, these, these guys don't, didn't even like people. You know what they did? They beat people up with their legalistic view of holiness. And they made it into a club. Holiness isn't a club. It's the bridge to something else. But they made it an end. Are you following me? So they beat people up with their legalistic view of what holiness is. And so you know what happened? The Chinese proverb was fulfilled. You know what the Chinese proverb says? The cat that is scalded by the boiling water will fear even the cool water. What does that Chinese proverb say? If you pour boiling water on a cat, don't ever try this. If you put cool water in a dish, he'll run or she'll run from that cool water because they were scalded by the boiling water. Well, the enemy did that with the church. So we don't even want to talk about holiness because we got scalded by it. And I've seen it. I mean, I grew up Catholic. I never experienced what, but I, I've seen these people who grew up in churches that they were beat up. I've listened to them. I've talked to them. 
It's so sad. But then some really smart, clever leaders came along in the body of Christ and they said, hey, we got to talk about holiness. I mean, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. We got to talk about it. So you know what they did? Now listen carefully. Here's where you got to understand this. They lumped all of the New Testament holiness into one bucket. But what they didn't tell us is there's two different, completely different aspects of holiness the New Testament teaches. Let me show you the bucket they put it in. The first aspect, this is the one they put it in, is called our positional holiness. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Look what Ephesians 1, verse 4 says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. Do you understand that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Because God the Father made a decree. He knew what was going to happen. He didn't plan it. He just knew it. What man, that man would fall and that Jesus would come and be slain so that he could declare us holy. That is our positional holiness. Let me give you an example so you can understand. Leave that scripture up so people can see it. 34 years ago, October 2nd, Lisa Toscano walked down an aisle of a Presbyterian church. Right? And she became my wife. 34 years later, she is not more my wife today than the day I married her. The day I married Lisa, she's every bit as much my wife today as the day I married her. 50 years from today, she will be just as much my wife as the day I married her. That's her position. That's what he's talking about right there. When Jesus, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, on that day, God declared you holy. He actually declared it from the foundations of the world. And you know what? You can't do a thing to make yourself more holy. Just like Lisa can't do a thing to make herself more my wife. You see this? That's our positional holiness. But then Peter talks about something totally different. Look what Peter says. In 1 Peter, he says, live as children of obedience to God. Do not conform yourselves to the evil desires that governed you in your former ignorance when you did not know the requirements of the gospel. But as the one who called you is holy, you yourselves, now look at this, also be holy in all your conduct and manner of living. Peter's not talking about positional holiness here. He's talking about behavioral holiness. There's a difference. Let me give you an example. Before I married Lisa, you know what I did? I flirted with girls. I got girls' phone numbers. I asked girls out on dates. I talked sweet to girls, right? After I got married to Lisa, I stopped getting girls' phone numbers. I stopped dating girls. I stopped talking sweet to girls, right? I didn't say, ah! I can't see another girl. I can't get within 20 miles of a girl. No, I'm interacting with women all the time. I, I, I see team members here that are women, okay? I got team members here right now sitting in this service that are women. I work with them every day. I sit on planes next to women. But what do I do now? I have a behavior that is appropriate to my position as Lisa Bevere's husband in the way I interact with women. When we got saved, we don't go, oh, I can't go anywhere near the world. <laughs> no, now we have a behavior that is appropriate to the relationship we have with our bridegroom, Jesus. 
You tracking with me? So now, why is it so important? Okay? Before I go there, let me just say one thing, because I feel some guys and girls in here saying some things. How do we live holy? Because to be really honest with you, the first six years of my Christian life, I tried to live holy and I failed. I tried to live holy and I failed. I tried to live holy and I failed. I was bound to pornography and I couldn't get free. I couldn't get free. I shared it with the whole testimony with the first service. I couldn't get free until May 6, 1985. I got completely free. How did I get free? I found out about the grace of God. See, in the church, we preach grace as forgiveness of sins, but we haven't preached as strongly that it's his empowerment that gives us the ability to, what, to do what we couldn't do in our own ability before. See, this is why if you look at this scripture, look at this, pursue holiness, without which no man will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. How can you ever fall short of the grace of God we've preached in America? Let me give you America's grace. I know I'm not living quite like I should, but thank God for his grace. That's not grace. That is not grace. Because I'll tell you this, you could never fall short of that. But when you understand that grace is God's empowerment that gives you the ability to do what you otherwise couldn't do in your own ability, then you can understand how you can fall short of it. Just as if I gave you a gun and you were starving, but you thought the gun just made a loud noise. You didn't realize it shot bullets that could kill animals that could put meat on your table. You would fall short of that gun's ability. It's just a loud noise-making thing, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? But you don't realize you could put meat on your table. That's falling short of the ability of that gun. See, look what God said to the Apostle Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power. God refers, these, are the, these words are read in your Bible. God refers to his grace as your, his empowerment. When I discovered that grace not only forgave me and cleansed me, but it empowered me to walk free from sin that I couldn't get free from in my own ability, woo, I became a happy guy. I tried living holy. I couldn't. But then all of a sudden I realized, Woo! This is his ability. All I have to do is believe for that grace. See, the Bible says we can only have access to that grace through faith. You can't, faith means you believe. You can't believe something you don't know. Most of the Americans don't even know that grace is God's empowerment, so they, how can they receive its empowerment? So, let's go back to, go, go ahead for me, guys. Or go ahead, pursue holiness. Let's Without which no man will see the Lord looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's have grace by which grace empowers us that we may serve God acceptably. Now, can I show you why you want to walk holy? Can I show you why? Look at this again. Pursue holiness. Now look at this. Look at this carefully. What's the next word say? Without which no man will see the Lord. Now, first of all, I want to ask, is he talking about positional holiness or behavioral holiness? He can't be talking about positional. That's like saying to Lisa, Lisa, chase after being John's husband or John's wife. She's going to go, I don't have to chase after that. I was his wife 34 years ago when I said I do. She's not talking about positional holiness. He's talking about behavioral holiness. Are you seeing this? Are you still with me? Yes. All right. Why do we want to chase after holiness? Because this is written to Christians. Why? Because without it, no man's going to see the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Everybody's going to see God. The Bible says when he returns as lightning flashes in the east and seen in the west, 
Every eye's going to behold him. Every knee's going to bow. Everyone's going to see God. What is he talking about without holiness? No man's going to see the Lord. Let me help you understand that. In my 57 years of being an American citizen, I've been under 10 presidents. I've been under their jurisdiction, their rulership, their decisions have affected my life. But listen to me carefully. I've never seen one of them. I've never been in the presence of a president of the United States. Now, there are other Americans. They see the president every day. Why? Because they're his friends or they work with him. But I've never seen a president of the United States. I've never been in the presence of one. You following me? There are Christians. They're under the jurisdiction of Jesus. He's their savior. His decisions affect their lives. But they're not in his presence. Why? Because they're not chasing after holiness. That's why Christianity becomes so boring to them. So in the church, these clever teachers, you know what we did? We substituted atmosphere for presence. We said, let's build a great atmosphere. Let's make people want to come back because we've got a great atmosphere. Look, I believe in atmosphere. It's not an either or, it's both. I want a good atmosphere. We're in charge of atmosphere. Let's not have atmosphere without presence. And you're not going to have presence unless you've got people chasing after holiness. Boy, it's quiet in this Methodist church right now. Is it just because you're listening? Or is it because you can't get, wait to get to the Rockies game? Are you with me? I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you one more scripture. I want you to see the words right from Jesus's mouth. John 14, 21. Look at these words. The person who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who really loves me. And I too will love him and will show, reveal, manifest myself to him. I will let myself be clearly seen. Pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. I will let myself be clearly seen by him and make myself real to him. Can I tell you what we're doing in the church right now? The way we're teaching grace in the church right now? I'm going to give you an example. Can you imagine if I walk up to my wife, Lisa, and I hold up our marriage certificate? Okay, we got married in the state of Indiana. That certificate says she's my wife, right? Right? Legally, she's my wife. Can you imagine me holding that certificate up to Lisa? Go, hey, 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 Lisa, I'm married to you. See? While I'm jumping in bed with other women. Now, I may technically still be married to her, although it wouldn't last very long because she'd shoot me. She's a sharpshooter. <laughs> and she's promised me if I commit adultery, she will make it painless. <laughs> we have the, the first green of the golf course in our backyard. She said, you'll be putting, and it, next thing you know, you'll be gone. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine me holding up my marriage certificate and saying, hey, I'm technically married to you. Now, let me tell you why I'm not going to commit adultery against Lisa. Number one, I fear God. Number two, I fear her because she's Sicilian and Apache Indian and Arabic and Jewish all put in one body. And, you know, they stole my land, a mafia, you know, I mean, she's also American Indian. So, you know, Hey, big trouble, right? So no, I'm just joking. There's the first two reasons, but here's the real reason why I don't want to commit adultery against Lisa. 
I don't want to lose intimacy with this amazing girl. Now, I want you to really think about this with me. I love it when she shares her secrets. The innermost fears, secrets, desires of her heart. When we're laying on our pillow, our heads on our pillows and she's looking at me and sharing, or we're sitting there drinking a cup of tea and her, her, cap, her, her espresso and she shares her heart with me. I don't ever want to lose that. That right there is the real reason I don't commit adultery. I don't want to lose that. That right there is the real reason I want to chase after holiness. You know, you know people ask me all the time, they say, where do you get the insight? Where do you get the wisdom in these books that you've written? Right there. Chasing after holiness because holiness isn't an end to itself. It's the bridgeway into an intimate relationship with God. And there is nothing, 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 nothing more that any true believer desires than an intimate relationship with God. Yet when we don't preach chase after holiness, we deny people the privilege of having that intimacy with God. We make Christianity boring. We got to keep it exciting with an atmosphere. We got to keep them thrilled to bring them back. I got news for you. I grew up in the seventies. I became a Christian in the seventies. Our atmospheres were horrible, (laughs) pathetic. Our music stunk. (laughs) Your music here was like I would pay to go to this compared to what I was in in the 70s and 80s. But you know what we had? We had the presence of God. And I got changed in that horrible atmosphere. What I want to cry out for is can we please have good atmosphere? But can we please get the presence back that I experienced when I was back in the late 70s and early 80s? I'm going to end with this. Watch this video and I'll close. Emma, these past seven months have been incredible. And I mean, honestly, when I saw you seven months ago, I knew. I knew from that moment that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with you. You're kind, beautiful, smart. I, I can't picture a more perfect woman. So. Emma, Lily Thompson, will you marry me? Yes, 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 yes. 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 I have to see other guys on the side, but yes. Wait, what? What are the guys? What, what are you talking about? I'm the perfect woman. Just like you said, I'm going to have gourmet meals for us every single night. Our house is going to be perfect. Oh, it's going to be amazing, babe. And I mean, you don't really expect me to be a one-man kind of woman anyway. Uh, no, that's actually like a, a, a big part of marriage, like you and me, together. Yeah, but I can't give up every guy. I mean, that's asking a little much, don't you think? A, a little, a little. I just asked you to marry me. If we're married, you can't see anyone else. That, that no, that that's Babe, wait. You're, okay, I'm, okay. I'm Shh. it's okay. Listen to me. Listen to me. Look at me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. You're right. I was wrong. Thank I you. totally understand where you're coming from. This is our moment, and we're going to be so happy together every single day, except once a week. Well, uh, once a week, okay. What, Just no. simply once a did, week. Did you not listen to anything Every other year. Said. 
No. I'm a what? leap year? N no. Okay. Okay. Emma, I, 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 I can't. I, I can't. Once a week on a leap year, and you're gonna freak out? Emma, we're, we're done. What? Babe, you were just asking me to marry you. Are you kidding me? Seriously? All right, so um, let's be honest. How many of you would marry someone like that? Let me see your hands. Why not? I mean, she really loves him, and, and he's her favorite. <laughs> why, why did he walk away? Because she wasn't giving him her whole heart. She still had room for those old boyfriends in her heart. Now, you would never marry somebody like that. What makes you think Jesus is coming back for a bride like that? What makes you think Jesus is coming back for a bride and says, just give me a little bit of the world every other week? Do you believe that? You're as deceived as she is. He's come back for a bride that has given herself entirely to him the way he gave himself entirely to her. Bow your heads. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for what you've given to us this morning. Now I'm asking that you would draw men and women to the heart of Jesus. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Most important words I've spoken all morning are coming out of my mouth right now. You can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You can believe he died on the cross. You can believe he was born of a virgin. You can attend church. But that doesn't give you a covenant relationship with God. Let me give you an example. You can have a girl, and she's dating a guy. She knows he's a great quarterback for the high school football team. She knows he's an excellent math student. She knows he's got a scar on his forehead from an accident they had when he was three years old. She's been to his house. She's met his siblings. That doesn't give her a relationship with him, a covenant relationship. It's not until that young man gets down on one knee like Alec just did in that video, opens up a little ring box and says, will you marry me? At that point, she's got a choice. She can ignore his proposal or say no, and she will continue life as is, knowing about him, even going to his house once in a while and seeing his true siblings but not having a covenant relationship. Or she, or she can say yes. And if she says yes, you know what that means? A couple months later, she's going to walk down an aisle of a church with a white dress on in front of a lot of people. And you know what she's saying about walking down that aisle? She's saying goodbye to every guy on the face of the earth, except for the one guy waiting for her at the altar. She's giving her entire heart, her entire life to him. Well, let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ... Our creator hung on Calvary, hung on the cross of Calvary, and shed every drop of blood in his body. Our creator shed every drop of blood. That was him getting down on one knee, saying, would you be my bride, the bride of Christ? Now at this place, we have a decision to make. We can ignore his proposal 
and we can continue life as is, knowing about him, knowing he's the son of God, coming to his house once in a while, meeting his covenant children, his siblings, but not having a covenant relationship with him. Or we can say yes. And if we say yes to him, that means we're giving him our entire life, our entire heart. Let me make this really clear. Lisa gave me her entire heart 34 years ago. She has made a lot of mistakes, and so have I. But one thing that didn't change is she's never removed her heart from me. I'm not talking about perfect behavior. I'm talking about your entire heart being given to him. It will eventually result in the behavior that pleases him. If you're sitting here this morning, you say, John, truth be told, I've never really given my entire heart and life to Jesus Christ, and I want to do it right now. If that's you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you to slip your hand up in the air right now. If you say, John, that's me. I want to give my life to him right now. I see the hands going up. Wow. Look at the hands going up. Wow. There's probably 50 hands up right now. Put them up high. No bride's ever been ashamed. No bride has ever been ashamed. This is what I want you to do. If your hand is raised right now, I want you to stand to your feet right there. Just stand. Jesus said, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. Just stand up right now. If your hand is raised, just stand up. Quickly stand. This is so exciting. I mean, heaven's going crazy right now. This place is quiet, but heaven's going crazy. I want you to do one more thing. I want you to slip out into the aisle. I want you to come on down here. I want to pray with you to receive Jesus. And as you do, can we give them a big hand? Come on, give them a hand. I want to pray with you. Come on down. Come on. Hey there. How are you? What's your name? Roxy. Come on down. Come on. Come on. Come on. I don't bite. I promise. I don't bite. Hey, come on. Give him a hand. How are you? I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Hey, buddy. I'm so proud of you. Hey. Hey there. I'm so proud of you. Hey. Hey there. Hey. How are you? Good. Hi. How are you? Hey. How you doing? Come on. Give him a hand. Hey, I'm not missing you. So proud of you. So proud of you. So proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Hey there. Hey, man. Hey. Hi. Come on, give me five. Come on, man. Put it up there. Look at this. Come on, give them a hand. Do you understand what's going on? Hey, is there anyone else? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Make, this, make the decision. If you're sitting there going, man, I want to be up there, just get out of your seat and come down right now. Right now. Come on down. I, don't, I, I just sense there's somebody else. Hey, all right. So proud of you. So proud. Is, are you with her? Anybody else? I want to make sure nobody's missed. Nobody's missed. Okay. Okay. Now listen. Can, can you guys look at me really quick? Why do you have such sad looks on your face? This is like the greatest decision you've ever made. You understand? This is like better than Christmas as a kid. Okay? Seriously. I mean, you're going to look at me 25 million years from today, and you're going to say, oh, I'm so glad you told me about Jesus. Okay? Seriously. You you, you know, I I made this decision in my college fraternity of all places. My college fraternity at Purdue University. And I came home. I told my Catholic mother. I said, Mom, I've given my life to Jesus. I'm totally his. She goes, oh, this is one of your fads. You'll quit this like you quit everything else. I said, okay, mom, just watch. This is real. My life's been changed. So, you know, several months later, she comes up to me and she goes, you really changed. I said, yeah, it's real. So 37 years later, 
She's in the fad, and she gives my books away. Because what's about to happen today is real. Okay, now let me explain to you what's going to happen. You ready for this? Look at me. You're about to die. Isn't that cool? <laughs> okay, physically, you're not about to die, but the slave is about to die. Because right now, you are a slave of sin. And what happens is the moment you give your life to Jesus, the slave dies. And a brand new person's born inside. That's what Jesus meant when he said, born again. And that person is a princess created just like Jesus. A prince created just like Jesus. What's your name? Sote? So you're going to become Prince Sote. You got it? What's your name? You're Princess Elsie. Kelsey. Sorry, I got it wrong. So how does this happen? How does the girl get married to the guy? She makes a confession of faith, a vow of faith. The Bible says we believe with our heart, we confess with our mouth, and we're saved. God made it that simple. But you're giving him your entire heart by doing that. Are you ready to pray? Are you ready to pray? Ready to pray with him? This is so exciting, isn't it? Say this with me. Bow your heads and say this with me. Let everybody, let's pray with him. Father and er, God in heaven, say it out loud. Say it with your mouth. I want your ears hearing it. God in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. Forgive me for living life my way, apart from you, my creator. But this day, the 7th of August, I give my spirit, soul, and body everything I am, everything I have to you, Jesus. I say this. Jesus, you are now my Lord, my King, and my lover. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for recreating me and welcoming me into your family. In Jesus' name. I just lift up your hands. Just lift up your hands. What are you doing? Why do I have to lift my hands up? It's an outward sign of what you've done inwardly. You've surrendered your life to him. Now just stand there and let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I thank you for every one of these beautiful men and women that have come down. I'm asking you now, fill them with your spirit. Holy Spirit of God, touch them in the deepest places of their heart. Manifest the presence of Jesus to them even now. There's his presence right there. Right there. Wow. There's his presence. Would you all just stand? The presence of God is here. Just lift your hands up. There he is right there. Father, I pray the spirit of grace would come on every person under the sound of my voice to empower us to live a holy life. We commit today chase after holiness. There's his presence right there, right there, right there. Jesus' name. Wow. 
There he is, right there. Now I want you to whisper to him. I don't want you to say anything religious. I want you to talk from the depths of your heart. I don't care if you just say, God, you're so cool. Just say something that you mean. There's his presence right there. Now let's give him praise. Come on, give him praise. All right. All right. Now, okay. Prince Sote, are you with me? Okay. Kelsey, Princess Kelsey, are you still with me? Where'd you go? Right there. Yeah. Okay. So don't be polite. <laughs> don't lie to me. How many of you could sense his presence? Put up your hands. Put up your hands, honestly. Put them up high. Okay? Okay. Every single one of you, except for I think maybe you didn't recognize it. Okay, what's that? What, what's that God? What's that God? What, what is this? That's God saying, you're my girl. You're my boy. So you're going to walk out of here, and the devil's going to go, nothing really happened. Tell him to shut up. Okay? 